Welcome to Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. There are very few people that you can call a New York icon, and my patient today is one of them. In 2016, Ed Levine was inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America. He's the author of multiple books, including New York Eats and Pizza, A Slice of Heaven. In December of 2006, he founded Serious Eats, a site that launched the careers of hundreds of food writers, including mine, and went on to win two James Beard Awards. In today's episode, Ed talks to us about how he got into food writing. But I, I never had a master plan. You know, it's like, I just wanted to do stuff I love. Caring about the people behind his favorite businesses. I got to know them. And they were one of a series of replacement families. And what he learned during the pandemic. I now think that a properly toasted Bialy is one of life's greatest pleasures. Without further ado, here is my session with Ed Levine. Ed, thank you so much. It's nice to see you again. It's great to see you. Yes, well, thank you for uh, coming on Lunch Therapy. I'm so ready for some lunch therapy, man. Well, I just reread your book last night, Serious Eater, and uh, congratulations again on a wonderful book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you were part of the dream. Yes, I know. And it's funny because... Reading it, you know, reminded me of how um, emotional the book is. And, you know, in spite of it being a, a book about the business and building serious eats, it's also a book about your personal story and the psychological toll that it took on you. So I feel like we'll have a lot to cover today. Yeah, we- <laughs> well, you know, that's only because when I started writing the book, I realized that um there's no each business story is told from someone who brings it his or her own set of experiences into the business mm-hmm. you know so once i realized that a lot of what went down at serious seats and a lot of what i did and how i reacted was um a big part of the story and was as a result of the things that I had experienced growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I mean, I don't think there's anything revelatory there. <laughs> maybe maybe um, just for me. Just you wait, though. We're going to get into everything. So before we get to that, though, I wanted to say, yeah. I mean, one of the things that struck me and one of the questions I wanted to ask you had to do with your anticipating where food media was going at the launch of Serious Seeds. Because you've been you've been around for a while. I mean, you you were back, you know, at the very beginning, you were writing for the New York Times, you wrote a book about New York Eats, you wrote, and then you sort of anticipated this move towards food blogging. And I, I guess my question for you is right now in 2021, you know, where do you see food media going? It's 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 a great question because I always prided myself on being ahead of the curve, right? I was a mm-hmm. a 52-year-old uh, first-time entrepreneur and food blogger who um, was, uh, I thought, way ahead in, uh, of, of where old food media was, right? Mm-hmm. And I just thought I'd remain ahead of the curve. Right. But what what I didn't realize was that food media is evolving so fast mm-hmm. and that um, without me even knowing it, it went places that I didn't anticipate it going. Mm-hmm. And so we were late to social media. I remember telling people, oh, Facebook is not going to be a competitor. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. and then, so I think it's one of the things I'm realizing now more than ever is that I am certainly not ahead of the curve and I probably stopped being ahead of the curve. And only recently has have I thought that's okay. Mm-hmm. But even you know? right now, I mean, it feels like as somebody that was a food blogger in the early 2000s myself, you know, if I came around today and it was 2021, it, it feels like I would 
probably be a TikToker. That feels like where the future yes, is. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And so think about that. And you know, you're you're much younger than me, but the fact of the matter is, the TikTok generation is not you. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's not an organic relationship there. Mm-hmm. You know, there was an organic relationship between you and the blogging universe right. and the blogosphere. And there was an organic relationship between me and the blogosphere because I just wanted a place where I could write what I wanted without having to deal with gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. So, right. So a blog was the answer. And also and for you, I mean, I think the, the whole like missionary of the delicious and seeking things out and writing about them. I mean, that was the dawn of the, of, the, of food on the internet, I feel like with Eagle it and those websites and Chowhound at the very beginning, where people were kind of writing about the hole in the wall that they found. Yes, you were sort it's of right true. there. Yeah. Yes, and I was right there. And now, if you think about it, that's that those discoveries or that act of discovery has is either not as valued mm -hmm. or is so ubiquitous that people's opinions are not uh they don't represent much as as significant uh uh a part of the food culture as they once did well there's a certain romance i mean it's funny because your story and my story are not dissimilar in the sense that we both started at a distance kind of looking at this world. I mean, you were looking at um, R.W. Apple and Calvin Trillin. And I, I actually also loved Calvin Trillin and Ruth Reichel. And then somehow we both found our ways like into that world of, you know, these people. But um, now it doesn't feel like there's as much romance surrounding uh, the no, food writer. No, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, what's interesting is how transactional it all seems. Mm-hmm. And that people are not embarrassed by that. Right. That's fascinating. Right. Like you know, brand it's like, building and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> like the, I, you know, if, if, if when I started writing about food, you know, which was the, I guess the uh, mid eighties and I would tell people, yeah, I'm building my brand, <laughs> you know, they would have said what? And now it's not only legitimized it's almost required right and and i and and so it's it's just so interesting for me to watch different people and how they interact with the with the with the uh with food media you know like someone like kenji mm -hmm. right you know who is he is very true to himself on social media He's very active because it's a very organic part of his life. Right. So he doesn't, he has never once said or acted like I'm building the Kenji brand. He never, he does, yeah, because he organically, like you say, just loves picking things apart and thinking about them and discovering them. I mean, I feel that way too. I mean, you know, I, I just was documenting my like cooking adventures in the kitchen on my blog at the beginning. And it, and it really wasn't ever, I never thought this is going to be my career. I just thought this is a fun thing to do, which right. at this point, I don't, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think people, young people today who are launching themselves are thinking of anything, but the fact that they could become. No. And what's fascinating, Adam, is that I have met people online and had zoom calls with, um, people with you with a huge presence on YouTube, and that's all they think about. Hmm. You know, and they are, and 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 some of them are really talented and really smart, mm -hmm. and they have achieved things that I have and will not ever achieve <laughs> at the age of twenty five. <laughs> I'm and I'm not saying that. You know, like, look, I'm really proud of, of the of 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 my body of work, but it's just different, and you know, it's a uh, it's one of those things that everyone I think has to confront. I think you and I both have to confront that. You totally, know, it's like, yeah. And and 
you know, you you're sort of made your way and you're doing well. Uh, maybe it wasn't any part of a, a master plan of yours, <laughs> but I, I never had a master plan. You yeah. know, it's like, I just wanted to do stuff I loved. Well, it's funny because there's a part of your book, um, and I'm going to get to your lunch in a moment, but uh, where you talk about working at a job and your boss said that you were ambling at work, that he saw you ambling. And I really thought that was like a beautiful metaphor uh, for sort of what it means to sort of just be a food person and just sort of like ambling through life and like noticing this bagel shop that just opened up. And, yeah, and, I didn't uh, know that I was being judged by my carriage. <laughs> right. You but know, in a way, but there's something great about that. I mean, it's sort of, there's something very thoughtful and, you know, and not, I mean, it's, it makes me think of those YouTubers and the TikTokers where it's like all about ambition and drive. But for you, it's like actually being in the moment and just sort of noticing what's around you, which is great. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, and I, I, I don't sit in judgment of anybody. Right. Um, you know, people are still rewarded for hard work and talent, and it still requires a little luck. Mm-hmm. No matter what you're doing, totally. You know, I remember when Craig was just starting out, <laughs> right? You know, and he got that fellowship at was it Paramount and uh, at 20th you know, Century Fox, yeah, right. And 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 he went from directing you, uh, <laughs> accompanied by Rock Lobster, <laughs> for a video on Serious Eats, to directing, you know major studio back motion pictures. You Actually, know? it's so- very funny that you say Rock Lobster, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, so I might have to bleep this out, but he is actually right now in the process of directing a documentary about the B-52s. That's awesome. Which, yeah. And you know, you should have him talk to me <laughs> only because, and I think I put this in Serious Eater, I was the the B-52's publicist at Warner Brothers Records. Yeah, I saw and that. So in there. Yeah. I, I got to spend some time with them. That's so cool. And and they were the loveliest people. Oh, that's so, so great. To, yeah. To deal with. When I had to have, I think I had to have an emergency appendectomy or something. They sent me flowers and I'm sure it could have been there manager with the time was Gary Kerfurst, who also managed the talking heads, but they couldn't have been more pleasant. Oh. And and that was not true of every act that I worked on at Warner Brothers Records. So <laughs> if you tell Craig if he wants another vantage point, then yes. he can call me. Because call you. yeah, you know, and 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 uh that's great. But you know, think about Craig's journey. It's it, it it's it it's it can't be by design, right? right? Because there is no path to becoming a director. Absolutely. There's no tried and true path. Well, it's, no pu- it's, it's a yeah. purity thing. It's just like a pure, just a real, you know, organic, like you said, you know, just he wanted to do this his whole life. But we're going to now turn the tables on you. Yeah. All right. Ready. Okay. I'm so, ready. I'm ready. Let's go. What did you have for lunch today? So for lunch today, you know, uh, Adam, because we've been housebound, my wife and I both working at home, I can go for days without leaving the house. So I alternate lunch between something that I can rustle up at home or uh, something that I go out of my bike and I pick up. Mm-hmm. And, even and are now, you are you in the city? Are you in? Yeah, I'm in the city. Yeah. Okay. So today I decided, okay, if I'm going to talk to Adam about what I had for lunch, um, it was a sort of a combination. So last night, Vicky was uh, working late outside the house, and she called me. She said, "You're on your own for dinner," you know, and. So I wanted to make sure that there would be something for her. And I was pretty tired too. So like, I didn't really feel like cooking. And so I ordered from my friend at Mama's 2 
this new pizza that he's making with pear roasted pears and gorgonzola cheese. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of a take on the on a salad, right? With walnuts and and and, and lettuce. And um so I ordered that and so there was a piece left over. So I had a half a piece of that. <laughs> and then I was like I had a hankering for pastrami and this uh the owners of Pastrami Queen have just taken over the the last remaining deli on the Upper West Side. Okay. Uh, formerly known as Fine and Shapiro, it's now another branch of Pastrami Queen. And so I had a half a pastrami sandwich. It was actually a really big lunch because I had like half a slice of the pizza and then uh, a, a half of the pastrami sandwich. That's the perfect Ed Levine lunch. My God. I mean, talk about being true to character. I mean, that, that couldn't have been more iconic as you sit under, and for those who aren't seeing the visual, he's also under a New Yorker poster. So it's like the consummate New Yorker with pastrami and pizza. Well, psychologically, as we're going to delve in now, I mean, the first thing that occurs to me, and it makes a lot of sense for you when you described your lunch is talking about the people behind your lunch. And I think that that's fascinating to me that that for you, it's important who these people are. Where, and, and you said your friend from Mamas too, and then you talked about the people at the Pastrami Queen. So maybe a good question would be, you know, how important is it to you, the story behind the food that you eat? And how do you get that story? Well, it's interesting because when I started out, again, this is, I don't know if it's true today. That's what I started. I wanted to know the stories of the people who made the food that I love or who grew the food that I love. So New York Eats was um, my sort of tribute to those people. And, and, and it, there were two components, there were two elements of it. One is they had to make something delicious. And number two, they had to have an interesting story and I mean, if they just made something delicious, I would write about it. But it was always more interesting to me if there was a story behind the food. And what's funny is like when Ruth Reichel wrote a piece about New York Eats More, which was the sequel to New York Eats, just an expanded and revised edition. She called that's when she called me the missionary of the delicious. Mm -hmm. And and she said that um, she, that I wanted to see that the people who make or grow our food get the recognition they deserve. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so th the story was always an important part. And, and I think it wasn't enough. You know, I, uh, I know Jane and Michael Stern from road food and for them story was everything. Mm -hmm. And, and, and a food's place in pop culture in American culture was everything. So I would sometimes be disappointed. Like, you know, they tell this great story behind a, a, a burger place in Oklahoma. And then if I happened to go to it and I was like, well, oh, burger's not that good, you know? <laughs> just a great story. Yeah. It's just a great story. Right. And so I was trying for both. And and that's really what, it, what I sort of made my bones doing, as you know, and so, yes, it is the quintessential lunch because I've gotten to know Frank from Mama's Two. Mm -hmm. uh, I turned Pete Wells onto it. He actually reviewed Mama's Two, which is just a slice place with, I think, even before the pandemic, had fought four seats, right? Really? And Pete gave him a full review and he loved the pizza. And so uh, I've gotten to know him. We have we have lots of discussions about food media. Mm -hmm. That's funny. And, and um, but we also have discussions about what goes into great pizza. And as you know, I wrote a whole book on pizza. Yes, where I, you did. Where, where <laughs> I ate a, a thousand slices of pizza in a year. <laughs> and so, you know, what I've been thinking about actually, I knew I was going to be talking to you. It's like. So I had this slice of, of pear and gorgonzola pizza and he puts hot honey on it. Wow. Oh and my so, so here's the thing, Adam, I'm like, 
okay, is is Frank think gonna think I'm being a pain in the ass if I text him or call him and say, you know, it doesn't need the hot honey. <laughs> it doesn't need the hot honey because <laughs> you know, like my wife Vicky said it's it's very sweet. Uh-huh. And I realized he was layering sweet on sweet. Uh-huh. And what if he replaced you know, if he just left off the hot honey, because you're getting plenty of sweetness for the pears. But isn't it like a cheese plate kind of thing where you put like honey over like gorgonzola and yes. pears? Yeah, I I would assume that's why people started putting hot honey on pizza. And I can't uh -huh. remember who was the first person to do that. I think it might have been Pauly G. Okay. Um and it was Mike's Hot Honey, which we wrote about on Serious Eats. I need to try uh, that. I still haven't had it. It's good. And what's interesting is Mike once saw me at Pauly G's Slice Place talking to Pauly G. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I just have to tell you, without, I wouldn't be in business if you hadn't discovered us on oh. Serious Eats. Wow. You know? and, and that's part of what gives me pleasure from what I do and what I've done is, is again, it's like having people, as Ruth said, uh, you know, dedicated to the proposition that the people who make or grow great food should get the recognition they deserve. Well, one of the things you wrote about in your book and uh, that uh, people may not know is that your parents were card carrying communists. Yes. And I thought that was very interesting. And and I was trying to draw a correlation between the work that you do and your parents' ideology in terms of celebrating the working man. And I was wondering if you For could sure. talk, talk a little bit yeah. about that, about the that being part of what you do. Absolutely. You know, so yes, my parents were like a lot of poor uh Jewish first-generation immigrants in New York uh, were attracted to Communist Party ideology at the time, right? In the 20s and 30s. Which you know, was like da dangerous, right? I mean, yes. they could have been blacklisted. Yes, my dad could not get work as a teacher after he graduated from City College. He hmm. grew up beyond poverty-stricken, as did my mom. And they met at a Communist Party meeting, I think, at, at, C at City College. But he couldn't get a job. He was blacklisted. He couldn't get a job as a teacher. And, and, and one more very brief story about their lives as um, communists is my brother. I had one brother who just died, who I wrote a lot about in, in the book. Uh, Mike, right? Mike. Yeah. And um, Mike was about 12 or 13. So I was barely on this earth since he was 11 years older. <laughs> but the story goes that my Mike came home and told my parents that his teacher wanted to know why he had chosen the book to write a uh a book review of and the book was by howard fast a blacklisted communist writer wow so when my parents heard that the teacher was asking mike about why he chose that book literally that night adam they took every book in the house and hid them in the basement. Wow. You know, and That's so, fascinating. yeah, it sort of speaks to like the, makes me think of like the plot against America. Yes, for sure. Like Philip it Roth, was, those fears of, yeah. Yeah, found absolutely. Out. Yeah. And so I grew up, you know, um, I, I say in the book, like my house, I'm one of, I'm the youngest of four brothers, but it's like, it was like speaker's corner. Like, mm -hmm everyone had to sing for their supper you know we had to participate in a in a very active and lively political debate every every night really it was kind of tiring <laughs> but but i'm thinking even in terms of like the food element of your oh, yeah. perspective but 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 in terms of like 
capitalistic food entities like, you know, Coca-Cola and Oreo cookie and Nabisco versus like going to a bakery and having the baked good that's made by somebody at the bottom. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and every place that I remember as a kid is one of those places mm-hmm. where there was a place we got our, like there were, there were almost no chains in the, in the late fifties and early sixties. Right. So I got my rug at the Cedarhurst bake shop. Cedarhurst, you know, by the way, I grew up in Oceanside, which I think is near oh, Cedarhurst. Yeah. Oh my God. It was really near Cedarhurst. And in fact, the second Nathan's, and you are probably too young to know this, was in Oceanside. No, I go there with my parents. I would go there as a kid. And I first started going there before it was Nathan's second location. It was called Roadside Rest. Wow. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it kind of leads me to a question, which I wanted to ask you about being Jewish, being from New York, and being obsessed with food. <laughs> And, and, and I, I mean, so many of the characters you write about in your book are like Calvin Trillin, R- Ruth Reichel, Nora Ephron. And it's and it just feels like there's this culture and I come from it, too. It, and, you know, my parents are obsessed with restaurants, obsessed with where they're going to eat when they come to L.A., where they're coming next week. It's like and I'm curious if, you, if you've ever thought about that and where it comes from and what it's about. Yeah, well, I, I think for my parents, neither of them could afford to eat at a restaurant when they were growing up. Literally Mm -hmm. my, on my, my mother's side, her mother uh, made her living selling pickles out of a pickle barrel on the Lower East Side of New York. So that's a pretty, pretty meager living. My grandmother, by the way, my grandmother, I have to just say my grandmother's second husband owned a pickle factory on Long Island and she sold, she sold pickles at the Roosevelt Field flea market. Oh my God. So we have that in common. That's hilarious. (laughs) But anyway, so they never went to restaurants, but they did go to restaurants when I was growing up. They used to go to the city and they'd go see a play and they went to, I remember Seafair of the Aegean, which was this Greek seafood restaurant. They bring home the salad dressing. <laughs> so, and you know, like my mother was not a good cook. She didn't profess to be interested because she, she was much more interested in being a feminist, mm-hmm. you know? And so she wrote for something. I don't know if, if this paper existed when you were growing up, the South Shore Record. I don't know. <laughs> was was a local paper. My grandfather uh, worked for the Long Island Press. Press, you know that? Yeah. right, which was the competitor to Newsday. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So so my mother wrote a, a basically a, a weekly column about progressive child rearing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and also espousing anti-war sentiments. And I still have. I found copies of all her columns. I went out to the South Shore Record before it closed, like 20 years ago, and Xeroxed, Adam, every column she wrote. That's so cool. What a nice memento to have of your Yeah. So, you know, so for us, and we, and I don't know if this is true of you, we used to go to the Chinese restaurant in Hewlett, China Jade. Every we, we, Sunday, we would go to the Palace of Wong. I don't know if that was there when you were growing up. Um, and then, and so, like, but we we never went to anything fancy, right? And and I think, you know, because my dad remained an armchair communist, even though he became a sort of unhappy but reasonably well paid business person working for my uncle, for my mother's brother. He he remained such a staunch communist that he defended the Russians when they invaded Budapest with the tanks in 1956 to put down the Hungarian rebellion. Okay. Wow. Okay. So it just shows you how fiercely he held 
onto those beliefs, mm-hmm. even though he was driving around in a leased car and had monogram shirts, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't like he was Richie Rich or anything. But so I think it's, it's almost, it was almost inevitable that, that that part of their DNA would have been imprinted on me, mm-hmm. you know, to appreciate the work of working people and of uh, of the common man. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was how I moved forward in the world. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was going to ask you, I mean, because a big part of your story is that you lost your parents very young. And then I was wondering about the connection between your the emerging love for food and sort of, and you write about this in the book, but sort of how you were a little bit lost, you were a little bit, you were sad. I mean, I mean, inevitably going through a depression. I, you, I think you tell a story of going to the Grand Canyon and not get, not getting out of the car. Yes, that was just my my <laughs> oldest brother who adopted me and his new wife. Yeah. Yes, we were drive, driving across the country to his first teaching job in L.A. teaching law at USC, and I was going to uh, uh, spend my senior year of high school at Fairfax High. Right, which is right down, not too far right. from my apartment. Yeah. So anyway, yes, and we got to the Grand Canyon, and he, he was like, aren't you going to get it out of the car? And I was like, I've already seen it. Probably hasn't changed. You know, it's, it's like, I love that petulant teen version of Ed yeah, yeah. Like, I don't need to see the Grand Canyon. You've seen it. But right. I was going to ask, though, in terms of, I, I kind of drew a connection when you were talking, at the very beginning of this, when you were talking about the people behind the food that like the people who are feeding you the you know, mama's two people, the pastrami queen, that they almost take on a parental role in a way, or a kind of a, com- a comforting role or a familial role for you. It's a hundred percent true. It's interesting that you picked up on that. And, and, and I write about this in the book, you know, when I got to New York, I used to go to Russ and daughters. Mm-hmm. I didn't know them. I didn't know anybody in the family. I just knew what kind of place it was. I recognized the sense and the and what it looked like and it was like this is a place I belong. Mm-hmm. And so I got to know them. And they were one of a series of replacement families. You know that I it's almost like I needed to find them in New York, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was, because I was 21. So, you know, my my dad had died when I was 12. My mom died when I was 15. So things were pretty, I was pretty low, you know, yeah. when I came to New York. And so to find comfort in those places was actually, in retrospect, really important. Well, I think it speaks to your passion for food. I mean, for me, it's interesting because I went, I came out to my parents when I was in my early 20s and it didn't go well. My parents didn't react well to it. And that's when I got interested in cooking. And there was something about feeding myself and taking care of myself that led me into the kitchen. And for you, it, it, it's interesting because it, it, it was in restaurants and, and food purveyors yes. that you found that, but it's still sort of the same idea, which is to, yes. to nurture you need, yourself. You needed to find sustenance somewhere. Yes. And you, you weren't getting it from your parents because they didn't want to hear about it. What do yeah. you mean? What do you mean you're gay, Adam? You know, it's like, <laughs> Don't you make can't me re- be gay. Relive the trauma, yeah. Right. But, but, yeah. You know, and for me, it was just, and there's also something, and it might have been the same thing for you. It was also an escape. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't really ready to contemplate the reality of what had happened to me. You know, and all I knew was that I had to put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. Absolutely. And at some point, I was going to have to deal with those feelings uh, because, you know, that was a dual set of catastrophes. Right. One you on know, top of the other. Yeah. One on top of the other. But you, when you're a kid, you don't go, okay, I really need to figure out how to process this. <laughs> no. Right? Yeah. All you do, you know, I guess you could crawl up into the fetal position and go into a closet <laughs> uh, and and come out for meals. But, you know, that wasn't 
what I was going to do and it wasn't even presented as an option. How did those issues, I mean, how did losing your parents, I mean, this is a very personal question, um, but how did it, how did those chickens come home to roost later in life? I mean, what, what did that do to your psychology or how did that shape? Yeah, your psychology? it's a, it's a great question because what it resulted in was that I tried to make every work situation into a family situation. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Not a good idea. <laughs> right. Not I've, a good I've heard idea. That. Yeah. I've heard never hire somebody that you can't fire. Right. Yeah. And so that was one of the big problems with me in business mm -hmm. uh, uh, is that these people were not my family. There were people, many of whom I'm still close to mm -hmm. and still very fond of. And I couldn't be prouder of all the Serious Eats alumni, including you, who like uh -huh. have gone on to do really cool stuff. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, it's it's true that and I say that at the end of the book, it's like, you know what? They're not family. And the new set of serious eaters don't regard me as their dad. Mm -hmm. It's a good gig, right? You know, and uh, and so that it caused me a lot of pain. But it's interesting because it's it's not like a crazy notion that the people you work with become your family. I mean, it's like basically the premise of the Mary Tyler Moore show. It's like you know people. Uh, in work environment or cheers or any sitcom. I mean, I guess sitcoms aren't the real world, but it's this idea that the people you work with are can become your family. Absolutely. Phil Rosenthal, uh, who's a friend of mine that um, is in your world now, as well as in my world, you know, he created Everybody Loves Raymond and right. now has a food show on Netflix. He once said to me, because, you know, these two producers, as I told you, who have option serious eater, and they're trying to turn it into a sitcom. He once said, and so I said, you know, it seems like uh, it should be about work and family. And he was, he said to me, he literally said, Ed, every sitcom is about work and family. It's <laughs> a good point. I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because I was just thinking as we were talking that um, you have a son and he's in LA now, right? Yeah. But I was curious about being a parent um, for you in terms of food, like in terms of your love for food, were you able to pass that on to your son? Was he as enthusiastic about it as you were? He actually is, although he's very health conscious. Well, he lives and in L.A. So of he course, lives yeah. in L.A. Yeah. and he's and he's in the movie and television business. So he's going to be he has to fall prey to that, you know, but. But he, no, he loves food. He doesn't love to cook. And I've only grown to love to cook, you know, in like the last 10 years. But he, he does love food. But I remember I used to take him around with me. And we were at the Union Square Green Market, like in the 90s. And, you know, like that was when chefs still showed up to pick up their produce before mm -hmm. they sent their foragers and so <laughs> i used to see like dan barber and daniel Ballou and you know like all these uh big name chefs and so we have a chat and 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 my son who i think was six or seven he says i'm never coming with you again <laughs> i i'm here for the food i'm not here for the conversation <laughs> Which is the opposite of you, right? I mean, it's right. sort of like we we're talking about earlier, which is that right. it's about the people for you and yeah. then also the food. Yeah, exactly. So he, no, but he, he definitely loves food and we talk about food and, uh, but, you know, he's very much his own person, you know, and, uh, you know, he, we were, I think he was five or six and we were going up the escalator at the Barnes and Noble in my neighborhood. Uh, which was on two levels on 82nd and Broadway. And I, and I was like, have you thought about what you want, might want to be when you grow up? And he goes, no, not really. I said, well, maybe you'll be a writer like your dad. And he literally looks at me and he goes, no. 
<laughs> no. You know, so like right. he was very much his own person even then. But he does, he is very interested in food. Would you guys, he, would, would you as a family, because your your wife is um, an editor and edit, a literary books. agent, literary agent. Sorry, sorry, liter but former editor, yeah. right? Yes, uh, but exactly. She, uh, but would you guys debate like pizza? Like, would you order from a new place and your son would say, this isn't any good? And you'd be like, what are you talking about? This is great. And your wife, no, would, not so like, much, <laughs> not so much that. And for Vicky, you know, um, she is much more of an eat to live person than a mm. live to eat person. Okay. Uh, she's a very good cook and an extremely good baker, um, which helps, you know, when you have clients like, you know, Kenji Lopez Alt and, and uh, Stella Parks and all these old series theaters, Max Falkowitz and Harry right. Jones and all yeah. these people who are writing books. But um so you know but she sort of but she in her own way she is serious about food but not to the degree that i am so when you talk about home cooking you talked about your you started to cook in the last 10 years and your wife cooks so what are some of the meals that you make at home you know i do a combination of so i i i i i have figured out that one way to make a quick and delicious meat sauce, you can't really call it a bolognese, right? Mm -hmm. Is if you buy one of the burgers from Citarella that they make from their dry aged trimmings. Okay. So they ha it has a lot of flavor. So I crumble it, I put it in a saucepan. Uh, I don't brown it till it's cooked all the way through. Mm-hmm. Then I literally, sometimes I'll make my own tomato sauce, but more often I'll just take a jar of Rayo's, mm -hmm. pour it in there. And then, you know, I know how to cook, to properly cook pasta. And then I will take the pasta and some of the pasta water, put it in that pan with the, uh, with the aged, dry aged ground beef and the and add a little bit of butter and you get this amazing uh meat sauce again it's not good. a bolognese it's not right. a bolognese right it's it, it, it but you it, really it, taste the beef there right i mean yeah about yeah. the beef flavor yeah that it's makes like a, it's like a, a bullshit bolognese you know <laughs> bullshit. it's like <laughs> that's a good name for you should put that on serious eat well i was gonna ask you because it just occurred to me that you know as the missionary of the delicious who was constantly out going to different places. How did you handle quarantine and what, what was that like for you? And what, what did yeah. you eat? It's it's funny. That's when we really started, like everybody else, it, it was a cliche, but we did, we did cook a lot more. And most of the time was really simple stuff. Like I can roast a mean chicken. Mm -hmm. I can, I can uh, put a chicken on a roasting rack, roasted at high heat, properly salted, Put some really good potatoes underneath. Like I'm really into these. Um, I don't know how you pronounce them. R a t t e rat or rat rat. Um, I think rat. That sounds right. Yeah, and and you know, I, I don't know if you if you're familiar with them. They have this wonderful sweet nutty flavor. You get them from the farmers market, or yeah, okay. yeah. And so I put those under the chicken. You put butter on the chicken or olive oil or anything? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Nothing and just salt. Um, and so we would make things like that, you know, mm -hmm. or uh, what else did we make? You know, we, we, we made a lot, of, you know, I started messing around with my Instapot a little and made a couple of Kenji's recipes for like chicken with chickpeas and chorizo you know this is really very peasanty cooking you know but did you go out at all like did you go get a bagel somewhere did you did you did you get delivery sometimes actually i'll tell you one of the things that's happened as a result of the pandemic i now think that a properly toasted bialy is one of life's greatest pleasures really In fact, i i told vicky that Whoever invented the Bialy should get a MacArthur Genius Award. <laughs> I feel like because, there's a book about who invented the Bialy. Isn't yes, there, there Mimi, is. Mimi Sheridan. Yeah, Mimi Sheridan. Yeah, the Bialy Eaters. Uh, and, 
it's a really, it's actually quite a good book. And, um, but we, we buy Bialis by the bagful. And, you know, what's interesting about Bialis is that a lot of bagel places sell Bialis that aren't even Bialis, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a different technique. Well, I got a Bialy from Justa here in LA. The Jelena people have a bakery called Justa. But I have to confess, I don't really know how to eat a Bialy. Like, in the sense of like with a bagel, you slice it in half, you put on the cream cheese, you put it, but with a Bialy, do you you just put the cream cheese on top? What do you do? No, so you slice the Bialy. And I think I've had the Justa Bialys and they're, and they're really good. Mm -hmm. They're so good that if you buy one fresh, I don't believe you need to toast it. Okay. Uh, but the Bialis we buy from a Bialy bakery in Brooklyn, Bell's, I think, mm-hmm. and, uh, you have to toast those and then a Bialy with butter, you toast the Bialy and just put some salted butter on it. It's a transcendent eating experience. Wait, you slice it through the middle and put the butter no, you in slice the middle? You, you slice it, uh, horizontally. Horizontal. And then you put the butter in that little yeah so you put you put the butter on the side of the bialy that doesn't have the hole okay so no butter escapes but do you close it and then and then you close it and then you eat it it's funny because it's like i'm so aware of bialy's my whole life but i never quite got them so this is very helpful yeah Well, it's funny I'm glad. Because, See, this is therapeutic for you. Right? It is. Well, it's funny because my first guest this season of Lunch Therapy was Soleil Ho, whose lunch involved a shrimp, a shrimp head or a prawn head. And she was explaining how to eat the prawn head. And now you're explaining how to eat a bialy. And you guys have something else in common, which is you both went to Grinnell College. Yes. You know, she was on Special Sauce, my podcast. And and I read when I read when I was doing my homework for the show, I was like, wow, she went to Grinnell. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And she grew up in Manhattan, I think, yes, right? she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys have a lot in common. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have a couple more questions. I mean, we're going to, yeah. this is flying by, but one of the things that occurred to me when we were talking was about chutzpah, because I was thinking about you calling the pizza guy about the hot honey and telling him that it doesn't work. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about your chutzpah and like where it comes from and, and has it ever gotten you into trouble? Um. I'm sure it's gotten me into trouble. I think, I, you know, I had a relative who said that it, that she thought that all the Levine boys got their chutzpah uh, from their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I was too young when they died to recognize it. Uh, but I've always had it. And it's one of the reasons I'm a terrible employee. <laughs> Right. Having chutzpah and being a good employee do not mix well. Right. And so one of the reasons I started Serious Eats is because every time I tried to have a regular job, it didn't work in large part because of the chutzpah that I displayed. (laughs) And so I, you know, I do think it came from, you know, having to speak up at Mm -hmm. my house like that. You had to speak up. Silence was not an option. Right. Yeah, I think that's true in my family too. It's like there's a lot of yelling in my family. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And people think, oh, is it yelling like you know, like the loud family, or is it you know? It's like no, it's just yelling. Right. Yeah. But even in terms of like food, like going to a restaurant, like my mom would mortify my brother and I, like she, you know, to get the steak and be like, yeah, this is a little too fatty. Can you, can you make us another one? You know? And like, now I'm like traumatized by that. So I'll, I'll eat anything at a restaurant, but, but I guess in terms of like calling the guy and saying that, you know, I guess, do you get yourself into trouble in terms of like giving feedback yeah. about food? You know, I, I, I'm sure I have, but nobody has called me on it right nobody has said you know it's like and and often i try to cover my tracks by saying you know you don't have to listen to me i'm not a pizza maker yeah and by the way you wrote a book on pizza so it's you're, you're doing him a favor you are an expert right yeah so no nobody's really at least not in the food world plenty of people in you know in in, in my in my work life 
that I work for is like, I don't really <laughs> want to hear your opinion. Well, it also yeah. makes me think of the chutzpah. Um, I'm really emphasizing the ch and chutzpah for some reason uh, of being a tastemaker of sort of saying, I know what a good pizza yes. is. I know what a good bagel is, but where did that come from? How did, how did you think that you knew what was a good bagel and what was it, a good? It's a, it's a question I still ask myself. In the beginning, it was, I have opinions. And like anything else, it's, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And so what, that's when I wrote my first book, uh, I had written a lot about music, but I'd never written a book about food, right? And mm -hmm. so people would say to me, well, how do you know where the best brownie is? I tell you what the criteria I look for in a brownie mm -hmm. and whether this brownie delivers on those qualities. You don't have to agree. In fact, I used to love it when this was before social media, people... <laughs> would come up to me and say, you know, you missed this uh, cherry pie in Far Rockaway. Like, right. great. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's part of the fun. Right. Well, it, makes, and, it makes me think that people people crave authority figures. They, yes. People want, people want to be told, like, where do I go? What do I do? So yeah, it's, maybe it's good not when... as much now. Right? right now, everything is crowdsourced. Mm -hmm. I remember somebody applied for a job and I hired them at Serious Eats. And she said, my, my boyfriend, now her husband, would never go to a restaurant that got, had less than, uh, I don't know, four stars from Yelp. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you use Yelp to figure out where to go to eat? But <laughs> so that's many people what, do, yeah. That's, that's what's happened. You know, or as you say, and, and I think the role that, that authorities play in in people's eating habits has been reduced. Maybe, I mean, it's funny because we went to Japan right before the pandemic and we had like a couple nights in Tokyo and a couple of nights in Kyoto. And I was looking at Eater, I was looking at, and I became so overwhelmed with all the information on the internet about where I should eat and what I should do. And I had such limited time and you have to go here, you have to go there. And it turned out the best meal that we had was we stumbled upon a little temple in Kyoto. And this woman was, making, awesome. was making soba noodles outside in a little tent. And right. we, just had, we had that and that was incredible. And, I, and it was this sense of relief of, oh, I just found this little place and it was exactly. great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's so great that no matter how much coverage there is of food in the world, you can still do that. Right. And you, and you have to learn to trust yourself. I mean, I think it can become, it can become overwhelming with all the experts out there and all the Yelp Absolutely. reviews that it's like, and I think that's what you've always done is trust your own taste and trust yeah. your instincts. And, and, you know, if people agree fine. And if they don't agree, that's okay too. You know, I mean, we're not, we're not talking about nuclear physics here. <laughs> so what are your current, we're going to, we're going to uh, get to your dinner in a second. Cause that's how I always end every episode by asking what you're going to have. But right now, in terms of like your rankings of the New York, you know, the classics, like best bagel, best pizza, what, what, what are your tops right now? So here, what's funny about um, the best bagel I've had in New York is the bagels that Melissa Weller, who was the original bagel baker at Sedell's. Mm -hmm. I've made. been there. It's great. And now she's doing a pop-up. Okay. Uh, and people could just Google her, Melissa Weller, W-E-L-L-E-R. Um, her bagels and her bialis are beyond reproach. Mm -hmm. I think the guy who owns Chelsea's, I can't remember his name, in Brooklyn also makes great bagels. Um, and so those are probably my two favorite bagels at the moment. You know, when I wrote a big bagel piece for the Times all those years ago, I said Absolute made the best bagels. I remember that. And I went there. And, it, and I they're good. Yeah. They are really good. And now it's a thing. Like, right. no matter what the weather is, Adam, there's a long line outside. Oh, yeah. I uh, liked it because it was kind of warm and soft, if I remember. It was sort of. Yes. Yeah. And with a little bit of crunch. Mm -hmm. And it was it was um, uh, sweetened with malt, as it should be. Um, but I think I told you this on the phone the other day. The weird thing is, and I say this as a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker, who spent a fair amount of time in L.A., that the best bagel I have had in the last 10 years and maybe ever is the bagel from Courage 
in LA. In LA. Yeah. And and that's right near where I live, but I'm so I don't have the courage to wait in line for it. But yeah. <laughs> maybe those, I need to. <laughs> those bagels are amazing. So pizza, um, I still love um Anthony Mon although I'm not even sure that his place on the Lower East Side is still open. Anthony Marginari of Una Pizza Napolitana. Oh, right. Yeah. And he kind of closed for a while and then reopened. Yeah. And now he's back open in his native New Jersey. Oh, in, wow. Um, and I think it's weekend only. You know, he's an obsessive pizza perfectionist. And I also love the pizza at Raza in Jersey City. Okay. That's, uh, that sounds like a, like a schlep. <laughs> it's a little bit of a schlep, except it's kind of like a subway ride because it's a three block walk from the path train in Jersey City. Okay, got it. So it's so worth, you, the, worth you the trip. Pick up the path train in the West Village, you know, by Macy's on 34th Street. So uh, I, I, and also what's happened now since you've left, which is now quite a while, Adam, yeah, 10 years ago, um, is that there are a lot of people making uh elevated slices including my friend frank from mama's too mm -hmm. and so i think his slices are transcendent who's the guy in brooklyn that was on david chang's tv show it's like really oh, hard to get in there yes uh it's uh what's his name from lucali yeah lucali is that is that one of your favorite i pieces? i i like it um it's um there's it's only crisp the crust does not have any tenderness. Okay. And I like something with a crisp exterior and a tender interior. Got it. And um, I haven't been there in a while, so maybe it's changed. I mean, I like it. There is so much good pizza in New York now. It's crazy. LA, too, and, has a lot of really good pizza. So, yeah, we're spoiled for pizza. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah. And, and you know, things like Delhi, it's still hard for me to not say that Katz is my favorite pastrami sandwich. They still hand slice. And so you get nooks and crannies on your pastrami and they mm -hmm. still give you the extra slice while you're waiting for them to carve your sandwich. Um, and what other New York foods are there? Those that, are the big ones, I think. I think yeah. I mean, wasn't there some fear that Katz's was getting sold at some point during the yes. pandemic? Yes. And then the, I, then I think the son has, I don't think he sold it. One of the, uh, not the original owners, but the, they've had the same owners, the same feuding owners for years. And one of those owners' sons took it over and has sort of made it and modernized it to a certain extent while still trying to retain its character. And I don't, I haven't heard that he's sold it. I mean, they were, I don't know how they fared during the pandemic because mm -hmm. it was built on volume and there was definitely never any social distancing at Katz's. Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you compare uh, Katz's to Langer's in LA? You know, Langer's has the double baked rye, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and we once did, did a great taste test with Langer's and Katz's and we invited Nora Efron to, to participate. It was so much fun. Cause she, she wrote that famous yeah. New Yorker article that said Langer's was the best pastrami. Exactly. In the country. And right. we had a, we had a great time. Uh, I think Langer's is a great, and I went, uh, to the, to the deli that, uh, what's his name from Langer's? His daughter opened in Hollywood, in West Hollywood. Wise Sons? Is that what it's called? Wise? No, no, no. That's in San Francisco. Is it called Daughters? Is oh, yeah. I know you're talking about, but I forget what it's called. And how was it's that? A, it, delicious. It was Great. in a little strip mall. Yeah. Almost in Beverly Hills. Like, I think on Sunset. I've driven past it, but I'll, I'll have to go check it out. It's um, really, really good. Well, Edward, we're getting to the end. So I'm going to ask you now, what are you having for dinner tonight? You know, that's going to be tough, Adam, because we we, ha we have some we have we do have some more of that pear and gorgonzola pizza. Uh, I'm always tempted. I also am a big believer in the childlike meal of pasta with um, 
either butter or olive oil and some really good Parmigiano Reggiano. Love it's that. Like, Maybe a little nutmeg in there. Yeah, could throw a little nutmeg. And I, I think that's a pretty great dinner. So I think now that I'm talking to you, I hadn't really thought about it. That's what we might do. <laughs> so pasta, are, is, is, uh, are carbs pretty uh, big on your Yeah. On your list? I I, I, I'm the same way. I love pasta and pizza. Yeah. And, and I try not to have too many carbs, but it's hard. Like my son is a real carbophobe. Yeah. Is everybody in LA like that? Oh my God. I mean, I have friends here who I'll invite them over for dinner and they say, just so you know, I'm doing whole 30 right now and I'm going to need you to do. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not honoring your whole 30. <laughs> it's like, if you're coming over, you're having pasta, you're yeah. having cake. I mean, I, yes, absolutely. Wait, I have to ask you, so people can't see you who are listening to this on the podcast, but behind you is, are some interesting things. I just want to ask you quickly. So I, there's of this, course. the Saul Steinberg, um, New Yorker cover of yeah, New York there's, City. There's a Saul Steinberg cover uh, of the famous New Yorker cover where it's so New York centric that, that, um, three quarters of the poster is taken up by New York and then one quarter by the rest of the world. Right. I love that. Image. Right. And, and it speaks and, to your New Yorker eatingness. Yeah. You love New York. Okay. Exactly. And then there's this fantastic picture of, of Jackie Robinson rounding third. Mm -hmm. And of course, my parents' progressive communist party leanings made me incredibly, made me an incredible fan of Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. Um. And so, and I love the joy uh, that's that he's showing on his face in that photo. I I can't tell if he's putting on the brakes or he's really going to steal home. Uh, <laughs> I have no and, idea. I'm not very sports knowledgeable, but, yeah. it, but it looks like it's a great picture. And what's yeah, the other, it, what's the other picture? So the other picture. This is a picture I took of my wife. Oh, many many years ago in Portland, Oregon. Oh, that's nice. Um, and, uh, I, I have to say, you know, she's a very beautiful woman and, and, uh, you know, we've been married a really long time <laughs> and, you know, when you, uh, I always tell my, my friends when they ask me for, for domestic advice, like you, you just find someone great to spend your life with. And then you hang on for dear life. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good strategy. Wait, is that, yeah. is that your son with the basketball? That's my son. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's a really old photo, man. He's actually kicking a ball uh, up on Cape Cod. Uh, okay. But, you know, I have to get a more recent photo of him. Uh, you know, he's out your world and in LA. well what's yeah. the what's the article that you have taped to the wall over your so right that's shoulder? really funny okay so that that's when i thought oh my god i've arrived in some tiny way i've been satirized in the onion <laughs> that's great about, about a month ago Serious Eats criticized for origins as website to rate hotness of root vegetables. <laughs> That's fantastic. You have to get, get that framed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then I see on the other side, is are those James Beard Awards hanging from the... Yes, uh, those are James Beard Awards. Um, wow. uh, you know, it's uh, I, I don't make a big deal out of them. I, I was really proud. Two of them were for serious eats of the days that you wrote for us. Yeah, I'll take some like, credit, sure. And then <laughs> uh, the the other one is um, I was inducted into Who's Who uh, in Food and Beverage in America in 2015 by the Beard Foundation. And what was really great about that was not the award. I mean, the award was lovely. Was that my brother and his wife came to Chicago to see me get the oh, award. That's so nice. Like, and he was in so much pain, Adam, and, oh. and he died, uh, I don't know, maybe six months later. Oh. But he insisted on going, talking to every chef that congratulated me. And he went to a couple of after parties and I know he was in tremendous pain, but it was a, 
it was a, a sort of peak moment uh, for us. And, you know, I was, I'd already sold Serious Eats, so we were able to just, you know, become simply brothers again and not business partners, you know? Wow. So, well, that's a really yeah. lovely note to end on. Thank you for sharing. And thank you so much for being so open and letting me delve into your psychology for an hour. <laughs> I hope you don't feel too uh, beaten up by the process. That's all right. We'll just, we'll just uh, meet next week at the same time. Adam. Okay. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ed. Enjoy your pasta tonight. And my uh, pleasure. And look, we'll, look me up next time you're in LA. Yeah, we'll look, absolutely. I, I will do that for sure. All, all right, right, ma'am. Sounds Take good. Care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, take a second and please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. And if you want to see what I've been eating lately, follow Amateur Gourmet on Instagram. All right, we'll see you back here next week. Don't forget to eat lunch. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.